Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Liquidware, the platform agnostic workspace solutions provider. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have those sponsors to thank. And now for some news. The SolarWinds hack saga rolls on. If you've been listening to the podcast frequently, you may recall on an episode a couple of weeks after the initial reports of the SolarWinds hack, and how it affected multiple US government agencies, that I covered a story reporting that there was a second SolarWinds hacking group. Well, this week, Reuters reported more information about the second group's activities, including the fact they used tooling used in previous Chinese state-sponsored attacks. While SolarWinds have confirmed a second hacking group, they have stated they have no evidence of the origin of that group at this time. Reuters reports this second group gained access to U.S. government payroll systems, so very sensitive data has likely been compromised. The Chinese government, the FBI, and SolarWinds all seem to be taking the high road and not giving much comment other than denials right now. For those keeping score at home, how the group got in in the first place has not been confirmed. So right now, there's only rumors about how the Russian-based hackers got in for the more widely reported hack with no solid confirmed point of entry or vulnerability that they took advantage of. And for this second hacking group, there's also no confirmed point of entry either. The only comment was that it was, quote, in a way that was unrelated to SolarWinds, end quote. So I know that I reported several weeks ago on the fact that around the time of the Russian-based attacks, some credentials were exposed publicly on a GitHub repository that has not been confirmed as the source for the attack, the way they got in. And at this time, it has not been associated with this attack either. Though I'd imagine it does fit the criteria that it's unrelated to SolarWinds technically, since it's unrelated to the product itself. but. Who knows, really? It's just all kind of vague and mystery right now. Google have confirmed there is a zero day in Google Chrome that is currently being exploited in the wild. It's a heap buffer overflow flaw in its V8 JavaScript rendering engine. And it's labeled as CVE-2021-21148. A Hacker News report suggests this may have been used by North Korean hackers in recent attacks. Worryingly, the infection can start by just visiting a fake research blog on a fully patched system running Windows 10 and Chrome browser. Microsoft, in a report published on January 28th, 
hinted that the attackers likely leveraged a Chrome Zero Day to compromise some systems. In a separate technical write-up, South Korean cybersecurity firm ENKI have said that North Korean state-sponsored hacking group known as Lazarus made an unsuccessful attempt at targeting its security researchers with malicious MHTML files that when opened, downloaded two payloads from a remote server, one of which contained a zero day against Internet Explorer. So I guess that's good that it was unsuccessful, but it's pretty bad that this stuff is being exploited in the wild. So obviously get out there and make sure you're on the latest version of Google Chrome. ZDNet has reported that Google is set to ban digital certificates issued by a Spanish certificate authority called Camera Firma. They say the ban will be coming into effect in mid-April with the release of Chrome version 90. The decision to ban their certificates was announced on Monday after the company was given more than six weeks to explain a string of 26 incidents related to its certificate issuance process. Mozilla actually have a pretty lengthy post sharing the incidents that include things like missing fields within certificates, basically compromising integrity and going against the agreed standards for certificates. And although Mozilla are the ones who have this pretty comprehensive list of the 26 incidents, at this time Mozilla have decided not to ban the Spanish CA, although maybe that's coming. The article from ZDNet goes on to detail previous CAs that got banned by Google, one of which ended up then getting bought by DigiCert, and another company got completely wound up with the report suggesting that right now no other browser plans to ban the certs, including Mozilla like I just said, but even with just Chrome banning due to their market share, it's enough to devastate a company. An exploit of vulnerability CVE-2021-3156 has been posted online, which is another heap-based buffer overflow vulnerability, but this time in sudo. The exploit appears to crash a Linux system. It's not too devastating, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, but since so many backend services that are very important run on Linux systems, with those getting crashed or taken down even momentarily, is far from desirable. Patches have been made available for various Linux distros and by other vendors for systems that they have that leverage sudo. So it's just a good idea if you're like you're a Cisco customer, if you're running Linux distros that you know, or even just other systems like I think that Citrix app layering uses CentOS for the ELM you may want to check to see if those vendors have provided an update to address this vulnerability within their offerings. The Phonics ransomware cyber gang appears to have shut down with one admin taking to social media to announce the shutdown and to state that a decryption tool will be provided to victims free of charge. In a statement, the admin suggested they prefer to use their knowledge for good in the future but that some in the group are unhappy with the decision to shut down the ransomware. BleepingComputer.com reports this ransomware strain started last summer and was not as prominent as some of the others, and at the moment, the only decryption tool publicly available decrypts only a few files at a time and is prone to crashing, but victims can expect a universal decryption tool in the future, it seems. 
Microsoft's security team has warned that they have seen a recent spike in business email compromise attacks soliciting gift cards primarily targeting K-12 school teachers in the U.S. Attackers impersonate colleagues or school officials to ask recipients to purchase various gift cards. They have typically used free email services like Gmail, Outlook, iCloud, and more. Microsoft's Defender for Office 365 will block these emails now, but those not using the product should still be aware. Don't fall for it. There was a pretty crazy hack in Iran of a popular messaging service there called RayChat. A whole lot of accounts were compromised by an exposed misconfigured Mongo database. One security researcher estimated it at 267 million accounts. Although some of the comments were responding saying that they didn't even have that many accounts. So that number is unverified, I would say, at this time. Some of the information from the database that was reportedly leaked online includes accounts with names, email addresses, metadata, and probably most concerning, passwords and encrypted chat logs. However, RayChat have stated that there's no evidence at this time that any data was taken in the attack. They state a bot wiped their site completely and they are working to restore all of the user data. So it may just be a case of a bot maliciously bringing down the site rather than exfiltrating the data. However, the same security researcher who tweeted about the attack did share a screenshot that looks to contain some of the information that would have been on their servers. So even though the company is denying it at this time, there's still a question about that. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Google's new transatlantic cable from the US to France is ready for service. They say it will provide 250 terabits per second across the Atlantic. ZDNet reports the new capacity should help customers run apps better in the cloud and take advantage of the latest in machine learning within the cloud. The next subsea cable to come online will be called the Grace Hopper and it's scheduled to go live in 2022. And they say that that will give Google Cloud a massive global network of fiber optic links and subsea cables to provide its 24 Google Cloud platform regions and over 100 cloud CDN locations. I guess the only comment I would add is I think about a year or two ago, an executive within Google seemed to be suggesting that if Google Cloud Platform doesn't grow its market share in the short term, they may pull out of the market altogether. But building this infrastructure and laying these cables suggests that it is a long-term investment. So I hope that's true. I hope it is a long-term investment because, again, competition breeds innovation and also brings competitive pricing for all of us customers. Bleepingcomputer.com have reported that recent Windows 10 updates are causing Visual Studio to crash and also causing some apps developed with WPF to crash too. WPF has become very popular in scripting circles with PowerShell as a GUI interface for PowerShell scripts. So this may be of concern to not just software developers using Visual Studio for their work, but also some of those just leveraging WPF within PowerShell too. And the main culprits are KB4598301 and KB4598299. There is a manual fix in the article posted by bleepycomputer.com and I'll share that with this episode. 
which is episode 162. And you'll find that link on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode. But that manual fix, some are claiming, doesn't work consistently. It is possible to uninstall the patches, however, and Microsoft have confirmed they are aware of the issue, and with Patch Tuesday on the horizon, hopefully this gets addressed sooner rather than later. Microsoft have launched their Azure Quantum Preview. They claim it's the world's first full-stack public cloud ecosystem for quantum solutions. Developers, researchers, systems integrators, and customers can use it to learn and build solutions based on the latest innovations using familiar tools in the most trusted public cloud. Yeah, you can tell I just read a press release for that. The unified Azure quantum ecosystem, they say, will accelerate your research and development with access to diverse quantum software and hardware solutions a network of leading quantum researchers and developers, a robust resource library, and flexible self-service or tailored development programs for customers and systems integrators. So it sounds pretty interesting. It sounds like they're going to harness a lot of their scale from Azure to provide massive resources for very intensive development. But not only that, but they're also building this kind of resource library and network for collaboration and communicating across these hardcore developers. You could try Azure Quantum today for free and join that ecosystem and work with some pretty interesting developers by the sounds of things. IGEL, or EGEL, have released firmware with Citrix Workspace app version 2101 which brings with it, very importantly, enhancements for Microsoft Teams optimization. So they have a pretty big customer base now. They're very widely used and will work from home. A lot of people are relying on Microsoft Teams. So if you are one of those people rolling this out to your work from home people, this is a firmware upgrade that you're likely want to test and roll out as soon as you can. Tim Mangan's awesome passive install tool has released a new version, version 2.1.0.0. He's added a pause resume to his start passive sleep commandlet. He's added an overwrite switch parameter to the copy passive folder. He's also added support in remove passive desktop shortcuts and remove passive start menu shortcuts for URL style shortcuts. And he's updated documentation and provided some additional fixes too. And in some other quick hit stories, Microsoft Power Toys version 0.31.1 has been released and it mainly contains small fixes, but also has some nice small little additions like dark mode for the Fancy Zones editor. And probably more importantly, since I think Fancy Zones is probably the best feature within the product right now, they have improved Fancy Zones user interface to make it easier to use and to plot out your monitor real estate. So check that out for that and more. Citrix ADC is now officially validated for use in Microsoft's Azure Stack Hub. With Citrix ADC as a validated partner, Citrix customers should be able to benefit from operational consistency across hybrid cloud environments with Azure services, infrastructure, and operations for Azure Cloud on-prem Citrix ADCs and Azure Stack Hub. They'll also benefit from flexible pooled capacity licensing 
which eases migration of applications to the cloud when the time is right. So you get the benefit of using your ADCs, living kind of between both worlds, both on-prem using the Azure Stack Hub, as well as being able to leverage for uh, public cloud hosted Azure. Citrix ADC Azure Stack is available now in the Azure Marketplace. Congratulations to my friends at the Irish Citrix User Group for winning Best Local Group of 2020. I decided I would not do this as a weekly webinar because I already featured it on a previous episode, but the VMUG EUC Day virtual event will be taking place on February 11th, which is this coming Thursday, and it's free and you can still register for it today. I will be speaking at the event, Brian Madden, and some other great speakers and vendors will be at the event too, so register today and come along. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Normanbauer.com shared a really interesting article actually back in 2019, but it came across my Twitter timeline this week, and it's how to get the real last logon time of an Active Directory user. So this is a topic I covered in a previous script, Tricks and Tips, but it's good to see other people with other methods for doing this too. And on the site, there's a pretty short, simple, concise PowerShell commandlet that you can use for viewing this information. So I think it's something that's pretty important when troubleshooting, and you might find this useful too. Manuel Winkle shared a new script in GitHub for the Evergreen module by the awesome Aaron Parker. He built a graphical user interface and added some more software options for install. And he promises that more software options will follow as well. He asks that you test diligently and report any problems to him. So if you want the ability to leverage that awesome Evergreen module and you want to be able to use a GUI instead of uh, relying on running PowerShell, this could be an option for you. The Hacker News had a really interesting article on how to audit password changes in Active Directory. Fair warning, the article is kind of lengthy and it gets into some context like why people change passwords so often, how accounts are changed in Active Directory and via PowerShell, and also how the AD tools can be used and how they work. And, you know, just some kind of general information like that. But the logging information for auditing purposes is toward the end of the article, and that's what I found most useful, and maybe you will too. Sticking with AD security for this next one, but the awesome Steve Sifu on Twitter highlighted managed service accounts within Active Directory that sound like a perfect remedy for those service accounts that you use today that have passwords that never expire and are inherently insecure by their design. These managed service accounts don't require passwords, but run with the encryption of a strong password. So it's definitely one worth checking out. I know a lot of people are moving to products like Laps and CyberArk, for example, but this could be another tool in your tool belt. Tim Mangan's excellent MSIX report card for January 2021 has been released. I haven't reviewed the report card for this year myself yet. I know that at E2E, Tim shared that his current success rate was in the 50 to 55% range, I believe. And he was hoping that he'd be able to get to 60% soon. 
So I'm very interested to see if he was able to achieve 60% compatibility and success with MSIX. So if it interests you too, I'll share a link with this episode so you can check out the MSIX report card. And that's going to be on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 162. So Crips1S on Twitter shared a really interesting tip and I never thought about it before. He asks, have SCCM automatic restarts got you down? Well, there's a way to get around that, to get around like having SCCM restarts in the middle of maybe a PowerPoint presentation or during an important meeting. If you run the command shutdown slash R slash T and just put in like a string of nines, nine, 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 nine. Well, then Windows can only have one reboot scheduled at a time. So if you schedule your own restart for the future, it can't force a restart in the middle of your meetings. So I would assume the other part of this tip should be after your meeting, do a shutdown slash A, I think it is, to cancel any shutdown (laughs) because it's a really huge security risk not to let reboots occur after your patches. So yeah, if you want to be maybe a little cheeky and get around these potential unwanted reboots, you could do that. Just make sure to disable that afterwards. Trenton Tai was a guest on the Thrive IT podcast this week. He talked about his really interesting history on the R&T team for Voodoo Computers and how he still has some prototype chassis that he designed and he still uses them today. He also talks about his work with ControlUp and much more. And speaking of Trenton, he shared a pretty interesting illustration of Kerbos authentication that was written up by MIT using four different scenes and character dialogue. It's interesting to say the least. It's a pretty good way, I think, of breaking down how something that is quite complex works. Eric from zenapblog.com shared some really great scripts for automating the optimization of user experience with Citrix Direct Workload Connections for Citrix Cloud. And he also included a really useful script as part of this to help you encrypt passwords in PowerShell, which is just useful in all kinds of situations. The awesome Patrick Koble asked on Twitter, do you have a Citrix published or virtual desktop? And have you disabled the default ability to copy files to and from these same desktops? He says that most don't, and it is a blind side for a lot of people who think they have disabled file redirection when this policy is actually not disabled. So you might want to check out your policies after listening to the rest of this episode. For the first time in the history of this podcast, I am shamelessly promoting my own post two weeks in a row, but for what I think is a good reason. So I shared last week that I blogged on Life After App V, my journey converting my App V5.1 apps to MSIX and the trials and tribulations of that and also about doing a proof of concept with Numescent cloud paging. Anyway, my friends at Algus Technology and Rebro saw my blog post and offered me a really cool free infographic to include with the post. And it's based on a chart that I put together in my article that looked terrible, (laughs) to be honest. Uh, But this infographic looks incredible, so I wanted to share it again. And if you're listening to the audio-only version of the podcast, I'll be sharing the infographic on the video edition on YouTube, or you could just find it with the reference links for this episode. Finally, on a similar topic, 
Ryan Mangan posted a blog on understanding what's general release and supported for MSIX and MSIX AppAttach. I was a bit confused about this myself as Microsoft did not list MSIX AppAttach as generally available or included in the operating system what's new notes. But Ryan clears things up in his blog post. I've seen Ryan has also suggested that he's taken about 100 applications recently and plans to package them up with MSIX because he's hearing that a lot of people are getting a low success rate, which that certainly has been my experience of just using the native MSIX packaging tool. The first time success rate with MSIX has been really, really low. You need to apply a lot of fixes to your packages, whether you're converting them from AppV5.1 or just capturing the install with the MSIX packaging tool, which I think I mentioned in my blog post. If you are looking at packaging with MSIX, you should really consider using Tim Mangan's excellent PSF tooling. And I think um, some of the other vendors that make packaging tools have some features now that will include some automated fixes for your packages. So hopefully it's gonna get better over time. But right now, if you're just to use MSIX packaging tool and just using what's native, you're likely going to have a pretty low success rate in my opinion and in my experience. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.